Good afternoon. Welcome back to the class. This is the fifth week, and I was just telling my wife and the other member of our class here tonight that we actually could get finished with chapter one tonight. So that's every five weeks we'll get a, a chapter, so that'd be about 110 weeks for Revelation. I hope I'm not moving too fast. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to, to study your word together, Lord. We ask that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message, Lord, that you'll anoint our ears for us to hear and our hearts to receive, Lord, that you'll touch and move on the sickness, Lord, those that are, Lord, not able to make it due to illness. We ask, God, that you'll stretch forth your hand. You said by your hands... And by your stripes, we are healed, Lord, and we stand on that scripture, God. And we ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Verse 16, chapter 1. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Revelation is often a self-revealing prophetic book. We see in Revelation 1 and 20 that the seven stars are as well as what the seven candlesticks represent. Revelation 1 and 20, and we'll probably get there this evening, but Revelation 1 and 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Mm -hmm. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. And we're going to study each one of the churches in the next few weeks. We'll, we'll get into each individual church. Those are the churches that John has been told to write letters to. And there is a huge debate as to whether or not each church just got their individual letter or they got the whole seven letters. I believe every church got the seven letters, and I believe every church read the seven letters. That's just Robert's opinion. You can take it for what it's worth, but it would be nice, I guess, if you could say it, that if Revelation was completely and truly a self-revealing prophetic book, but it's only in places that it self-reveals to us, this is one of those instances. There are a few other places as well. The seven stars... He's holding in his right hand, showing that he has power over the angels as well as control and dominance. Now, he's not a domineering deity. He's not like some that, you know, we've studied in our Greek mythology or in our Roman mythology, but he does show that he has power and he has dominion. The right hand in biblical times often represents the power and the might of somebody. As a matter of fact, I'm left-handed, and they would have thought I was a little odd if I were in the Bible times. As a matter of fact, in some cultures, I would have been killed because I am left-handed. Thank God that, you know, America is not that way. But, of course, after we get through this Bible study, you guys may be wanting to kill me, including my wife over here. But the right hand is the power. They say that the reason why we shake with our right hands is so that we show that we don't have a weapon. If you're shaking with your right hand and that's your dominant hand, you can't draw your sword and kill somebody. That's what I've always been told about why we shake with our right hand. 
I don't know if that's the case or not. It's just something we do. But the right hand is usually your dominant. It is usually your power. We see also in this that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. It's not the first time in the scriptures we've seen a two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword. The sword of the Lord is his word. And we see that all through the scriptures. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it is, talking about the whole, or Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the whole armor of God and how the sword is his word. But we also see it in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 where he is using the word, he's using the scriptures to defeat Satan when Satan came to him and tempted him. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is quick. It's fast. It's strong. And it's sharp. It's cutting. He said that he only chastises those he loves. And he's going to chastise us if we are his children because we have to be disciplined. And he will use his word to chastise us. How many times have we read the scriptures and had to go, oh my, instead of amen, oh me. Often when I read, that's, that's what I come up with. It's like, mm, man, that was a slap in the face. A friend of mine told his pastor one time, said, uh, you slapped me in the face. He said, I'm sorry. I was wanting to... No, he said, uh, you stomped my foot and my toes today. He said, I'm sorry I missed. I was wanting to slap you in the face. It is a sharp two-edged sword. And why do we keep calling it a two-edged sword? What, what is a two-edged sword? Well, a two-edged sword is one that's sharpened on both sides. That way it cuts going in and out. It cuts top and bottom. It's what most of your battle swords were, were two-edged, and they were hardened. So that as they clashed against the armor or they clashed against the other swords, it wouldn't dent them, it wouldn't chip them. King David, when he brought the Ark of Covenant up out of Jerusalem, referred to the praises of God as a two-edged sword. In Psalms 149 and verse 6 we read, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and as a two-edged sword in their hand is what David is telling us there. So we defend and we, the Bible does offend at times. I think if, the, if it doesn't, you're not reading it close enough. So we use that sword as a defensive method. We often say that the shield is the only defense method. Um, defense weapon that we carry in the armor of God, but the sword is also a defensive weapon. It's also an offensive weapon. Sharpened on both sides. It easily plunged. I don't know if anybody watches the Forged in Fire, but one of their tests is how deep will it plunge? How easy will it will it plunge in there? How will it penetrate? How far will it penetrate? Well, the Bible penetrates, it says, all the way to the marrow of the bone. Why the marrow? 
That's where your blood is developed. That's where your blood is made. And the Bible tells us that there is no life without there's blood. Because he says that life is in the blood. So he's piercing even to where our life is at, where it starts. A two-edged sword sharpened on both sides can cut more easily, penetrate easier and farther. Since it's sharpened on both sides, it will cut with each movement. And there will be no drag or little drag in resistance once it starts to penetrate. Imagine seeing what John just saw. He sees symbolically, maybe he did see a sword coming out of Christ's mouth. But it represents the word. Christ defeated Satan, not by power, not by might, but by words. Satan said, you know, dash you, you can't even dash your foot up against the stones. The angels will protect you. You've been fasting for 40 days. You've got to be hungry. Let's take these stones and make them bread. He could have done it. There's no question about whether or not Christ could have done it. And he probably wanted to do it, to be honest with you. Think about fasting for 40 days. We can't even go through a 24-hour fast without getting starved because we're going to a doctor's appointment. I just had one recently, and I tell you what, I ate most of everything in the kitchen when I got home that afternoon. But he looked at him and said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every what word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said, well, you know, jump off of this pinnacle. You'll fly. There's no question that Jesus could have flown. He walked on the water. So there's no question that he could have flown. But he said, it is written that thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Every time that Satan came to him, Christ came back with the scripture. Now, Adam and Eve tried that. Well, let me rephrase. Eve tried that. But Eve got it wrong because she did not hear it from God. She heard it from Adam. What did God tell Adam? He said, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in that day that thou should die. Satan asked Eve the question, what did God tell you? Did he tell you this? And she said, oh, we can't even touch the tree that will die. That's not what God said. He said you can't eat it. He never said you couldn't touch it. Now, touching it, yes, brings forth the temptations a little closer, I will admit. But God didn't say that. So when, when Eve quoted the scriptures inaccurately, Satan knew he had her. Oh, you're not going to die. Your eyes will just be open. You'll be becoming like God. You'll know good and evil. I wish sometimes I didn't know about good and evil. I wished I was oblivious to evil. It would be a nicer world, I think. But you have to, you can't, you know, hide your hand, your uh, head in the sand. You have to face reality. There is a lot of evil in this world. But when we get the scriptures wrong, now, you can paraphrase. There's nothing wrong with that. You can paraphrase the scriptures. At John 3.16, you can say, and Robert... God said, but 
Try to get it accurate, but the only way you can get it accurate is to read it and study it. You first got to put it in before you can get it out. Had a professor in college, I had my eyes closed one day, and she said, what are you doing, praying? I was just resting my eyes. I think I'd already finished the test. And I made some smart aleck comment. She said, well, first got to put it in before God will bring it out of you. You've got to consume before God will let it come out. So to defeat Satan, you don't have enough power. You can defeat him by the word. The word is Jesus. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the same was God. The word is Jesus. So he's been around since day one. Whenever day one was, and he was beyond, he was before day one. Let him tell you what to say. It says in that scripture also that Jesus shined. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And we've talked about this multiple times, but I'm going to go back to it. It's seven candlesticks. And if you go back to the original directions that he gave Moses and Solomon, those candlesticks are menorahs and there are seven candles on those candlesticks. So there are 49 candles around Christ. And yet John saw that Christ shined even brighter. 49 candles is a pretty bright area when you really think about it. But he shined brighter than the candles. Jesus shined with the glory from the heavenly Father. In Revelation 21 and verse 23, the scriptures tells us, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. I believe in the city of New Jerusalem, when it sits down here on earth, whenever, however long into the future that's going to be, that we that the sun will not need to shine in the city walls. God himself will be the light for that city. But I believe that outside of the city walls, there will be a sun. Because I believe what happens is God returns the earth just like it was when he created it, perfect. And in Genesis chapter 1, he created what? The sun and the moon. The greater star or the greater light in the day and then lesser light of a night. He created the sun and the moon. So I believe that the rest of the earth will have the sun and the moon. Robert's opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. It says here the city had no need of the sun. It doesn't say the world has no need for the sun, S-U-N. But it says the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. He is brighter than the sun. And of course he shined. He's God. I mean, he is God. He was man. He's now crucified. He's come back. John's seeing him. But he was ever bit a man. And he was ever bit a God. So of course he shined. But scriptures also tells us in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34, verse 35, that Moses' face shone. It says, And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, 
that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. He wore a veil. He had to wear a veil when he was in front of the Israelites because he glowed. Now, I've worked in a nuclear plant for 26 years. I'm now in corporate the last 10 years, but for 26 years, I worked in a nuclear plant, and people used to tell my wife, what, you got to switch on him so you can use him as a nightlight? Does he glow in the dark? We don't literally glow in the dark when we work in a nuclear plant, but Moses had gotten close enough to God that some of what they call the Shekinah glory, the, the righteous glory of God, rubbed off on Moses. And he literally lit up a room when he walked into it. Yeah, that would be kind of a scary situation. You see Moses coming, but you see that he's glowing. I'm sorry, I ain't going to be around here. I don't know what's happening. So he would put a veil on his face when he was talking to the Israelites because he didn't want to scare them. But when he went into God's presence, he took the veil off because he didn't want anything between him and God. That veil is a very thin piece of cloth, but it was still something between him and God. Now, of course, Moses wore his clothes, but he wanted a personal face-to-face. -face. He believed in looking at a man in his eyes. Now, I understand that he did not see God face-to-face. -face. He saw the backside of God as he walked by. But that was enough to make him shine. We can't look, in this body of flesh, we cannot look on God and live. I believe we would be vaporized. That shine would just envelop us and would just tear us apart molecule by molecule. I truly believe that we would be vaporized. He saw the hinder portion or the backside. He saw God's back. And still, he shined. So the skin of Moses also shined because he had been in the presence of God. New Age people, New Age movement, that crazy bunch, will tell you that everybody's got an aura about them. And the color of your aura tells about your personality. Most of the time my aura is probably red, to be honest with you. We do not have an aura about us. Sorry, if you believe that, just burst your bubble. We do not have an aura. We have a, a personality, of course, but we don't have an aura. We don't shine. There is nothing that's emanating from us that's in the visible or invisible spectrum of the light. New Age thinkers and believers talk about the aura. This light, however, that Jesus has, that Moses had, and I think that we could still have, if we got close enough to God, I believe that we would shine physically, and of course spiritually. It comes from God himself. And in Psalms 119, 105, it says, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word lights up our footsteps. 
The Word is our flashlight, our spiritual flashlight, our torch, as it was back in those days. It will light up our walk so that we don't stumble. Too often, unfortunately, we, we try to do these walks on our own. I believe it was last Sunday in Sunday school. It might have been last Thursday in, in, in this class that I talked about my guardian angel. I used to hear someone, when I would wake up and I would be scared as a young boy, I would hear light footsteps walking through my parents' house. No, I do not believe in ghosts other than the Holy Ghost. But I could seriously hear these light footsteps. And I'd lay there and I'd wonder, wonder why my mom was up walking around. Now my sister's room was behind mine. You had to come through my room to get to theirs. So I knew it wasn't them. I knew it wasn't my dad or my brother. They didn't have a light footstep. My dad never had a light footstep and my brother does it now. And they would run into stuff and fuss at it for being in the way. So it had to be my mother. That's in my mind, it just literally had to be mom. So I would, you know, the next morning, hey mom, I heard you up at three o'clock in the morning. Was you feeling okay? I didn't get up, Rob. No, my mom did not sleepwalk either. I said, well, I heard you up walking around at three o'clock. That's what my alarm clock said. What well, me? Dad went, no, it wasn't her because she had to crawl over me to get out of the bed and she didn't wake me up. Hmm. He's, ah, you're hearing things. But over the years, I've, I've come to believe that that was my guardian angel. Because when I'd hear it, I'd calm down and all the fear would just evaporate and I could go back to sleep. I've actually heard those footsteps here in North Carolina since I've moved out here. So it lights up our path. It shines. And if we study God's word enough, spiritually we will shine and people will see the God in us. They won't see us and they won't be attracted to us, but they will be attracted to the light that we put off, not the aura. I'm talking about the light of Christ. The light of Jesus is so brilliant that it can illuminate all of our hidden sins as well as our not hidden sins. And a hidden sin is those that, you know, we may not even really know about. We do it out of habit. The pastor and I have talked about, you know, people growing up around profanity and growing up in that culture and they just, that's a habit that they do is they use profanity in their everyday language. They don't realize that it's wrong. We went to an individual's house years ago. When kids was little and we was talking to them. They used to go to the church. They, they needed some help. So Lynn and I went to help them. And well, they drank beer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It did not matter. That was their soda. They had gotten into the habit of drinking beer. They were a foreigner. They were from uh, Germany, if I remember correctly. And they had just gotten into that habit of drinking beer. Now, I'm not saying drinking a beer is a sin, but I'm saying they got into that habit, so that's all they had in their house to drink. It is a sin if you've been convicted of it and told not to do it, and you continue to do it. 
But drinking a beer is not a sin. But why put yourself in that position? I'll leave it at that. So it illuminates all of these hidden sins as well as those that we're not really fully aware of. It is this light that gives us the life and gives it to us more abundantly. John 1 and 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Wouldn't it have been amazing to have been alive during the days that Jesus walked on this earth as a man? I think it would have been truly amazing. But I also realized that I would be called up in the crowd and I would be one of the ones that would be standing out there that night saying crucifying. Because that's half of the people didn't really, I don't think half of the people really wanted him crucified. They just got called up in the emotions and we still do that to this day. We get called up in everything. And especially if you go to a charismatic church, you'll get called up in the emotion and you really don't know what you're doing. You just follow in the crowd. So be careful of that. But if we were alive back then, we probably would have gotten caught up in those emotions. But it would have been awesome, I think, to have been alive during those days just to have seen Jesus face to face. Let us go further in the scriptures. John 1 and we read 1 and 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men. But verse 5 through 9. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, this is John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John was not the Christ. We are not Christ. But we are to bear witness of the light of Christ. And through us and what dwells inside of us, the people we come into contact with can believe. We've got to make it real to the people we come in contact with. Prior to our realization that we are sinners, we were walking in the darkness and the shadows. But once we accepted what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary and asked for forgiveness, we are now able to live the scripture of 1 John 1 and 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us all from sin. We went through multiple books of the Bible just talking about the light that his countenance shined like. Shined brighter than the sun. Imagine turning and seeing an individual that you know you walked with him for years. For three years, you was with him. You know him. You heard his voice. You recognized his voice. But you're seeing him new. You're seeing him fresh. You're seeing him with different eyes. You're seeing him the way we will all get to see him when we get to heaven. It had to be an amazing vision that John had that day. 
Verse 17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Here is John the Beloved, John the Apostle, John the Disciple, falling dead, or falling like he's dead, at Christ's feet. He could not understand, nor could he comprehend, and there is a difference between comprehension and understanding. He could not fathom what was really taking place at this time. And he was literally slain in the spirit, if you will. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I fell down at his feet. Reminds me of Ezekiel when he saw God high and lifted up. He fell down as of dead. And the angel came and put a hot coal from the throne on Ezekiel's lips. We see those that are in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18 and 6. As soon as then, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. They came to arrest Christ. He asked the soldiers and the crowd, the mob, who are you here to find? We're looking for Christ. I am he. And they all just fell over backwards like a stack of dominoes. And I think Christ just probably... When they got up, he said, okay, I'm going to ask it again. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Christ. I done told you I'm him. How many more ways can I say it? So they arrested him. But now that was also at the same time that Judas came and kissed him. But they wanted to make sure they got the right guy. But when he said, I am he, they went backwards. Ezekiel 1 and 28, at the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. I fell down. Ezekiel fell down. What would we do if God's Shekinah glory came down right now in this room? What would we do? I'd tell you, I'd be the first one to faint. I'd hit the ground. I'd pancake. And then I'd probably have to go home and change some clothes, to be perfectly honest with you. And I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm saying that truly. It would terrify me. And it should, because God is terrifying, if, especially if you don't know him. But imagine, he can not only kill your body, he can destroy your soul. That's a terrifying thought. Am I deathly afraid of God? No. I have a reverential fear for him, because I know he is sovereign, I know he is almighty, I know he is omniscient and omnipresent. I know all of that, and that it doesn't terrify me as in, oh my gosh, I'm scared to death, but that causes me to say, okay, I am not worthy to be right here where I'm at. Guys, I'm not worthy to stand here where I'm at right now talking about it. None of us are. Daniel 10 and verses 8 through 10. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision. 
And there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned into me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. He fainted. He passed out. This body of flesh cannot handle that awesomeness. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. He's now on all fours trying to get up, and he still doesn't have enough strength to do it. That was Daniel who walked boldly. I don't think he tiptoed into the lion's den. I think the old boy walked straight in there just kind of maybe even singing as he went because he knew that God could protect him from the lions. And I think during the middle of the night, he curled up with one of them and took one of those big old paws and just kind of put it over him and just kind of snuggled up to that big old lion and that's where he slept. And the next morning, the king comes and says, Daniel, Daniel. He says, shh, you'll wake the lions. I'll be out in a minute. He picks up Paul up, moves it past the lion on the neck and walks back out. Those lions hadn't been fed in a while, so they were pretty hungry. These are all instances where man coming in before the presence of Jesus fell to the ground. We should be so humble that when we come into his presence, we also fall to the ground, spiritually and physically. You know, if you're driving, you can't you know, get on your knees and pray. You can't close your eyes and pray. God understands that. But we need to find those alone times. We need to have those moments where we can get with God and God get with us and just talk. Just have a conversation. You're, you're telling me that I'm supposed to talk to God. Yes. Believe it or not, God will talk back. We, we believe that God is silent. We don't hear God's voice no more. It's because we don't take time to listen for it. God still speaks. I think he still speaks in an audible voice at times. Because even in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, he didn't always speak in an audible voice. But you knew when God spoke. Said that uh, you know the prophet was in the cave and he looked out and he, the wind, but God wasn't in the wind. There was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then that still small little voice came. That was God. We look for the big things. We look for the magnificent thing. We look for the huge miracles. Miracles are happening all around us. And we're not paying attention. And we're not giving God the time. And I'm guilty. I will promise you, I am guilty of it. We don't give him the time to talk to us. Lord, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And we're out the door at a run. How about the next time we pray, we say, Lord, what would you want me to do? Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, what should I do today? And listen, God will tell you. Verse 18 says in Revelation 1, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 
and have the keys of hell and of death. I am he that liveth and was dead. I, I was alive, they killed me, now I'm back alive. In those just few words, it sums up beautifully the picture of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Death, he was alive, he walked into, rode the donkey into Jerusalem the, the Sunday before. Well, that's why we call it Palm Sunday. They threw their garments down, they threw the palm branches down, and they sang Hosanna to the King. Before that week was over, they were screaming crucifying. Before that week was over, he was being crucified. Before that week was over, he was dead in the grave. And it wasn't even his grave. It was a borrowed grave. But three days after that, he got up and he walked away. He was alive. He was dead. And now he's alive and he's going to live forever. It is because the cross of Calvary that we can have new life and can also live forever with him. The keys to hell and death, it's, he says, I have the keys of hell and death, simply means he controls hell and death. He's got the keys to the gate. I've got the keys to the church. I've got the keys to my house. I've got the keys to my car. If you don't have the keys, you can't get into the church. You can't get into my house. And you can't get into my car. And you certainly can't drive it if you don't have the key. Now, you can borrow the key from me. Okay, no problem. But then you've got control of that vehicle. You've got access. You've got control. That's what it's talking about. He's got control. He's got access. Now, he's not opening the gate and kicking people into hell. He's not. God doesn't send anybody to hell. No. Hell wasn't even designed for a human being to go to. It's not why it was designed. It was designed for Satan and the fallen angels. That was all that was supposed to ever go to hell. But because of our sin of disobedience and not listening, because we don't accept what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, because we do not ask for forgiveness, we get on that bus, we drive that bus down through the gates of hell. We have an option. We don't have to get on that bus. We don't have to drive it down through the gates of hell. We can get on the ladder that Jacob saw, if you will, as he rested in the field that night, and the angels was coming up and down the ladder. You can get on the ladder and climb to heaven. That's your choice. That's your choice, but you don't have the power to do it. You have to accept what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. You have to accept what he did for you on the cross of Calvary. He has access. He can open and if you have the keys, you can open and shut it whenever you want. Ephesians 4 verses 8 through 10 tells us that Jesus rose first. He, wrote, he, he that rose first descended to Abraham's bosom. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captive, captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is that? But he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Why in the world did I bring up this scripture? 
we see that he went to Abraham's bosom. And I'll explain why we call it Abraham's bosom in a minute. But he went to Abraham's bosom and he took Abraham's bosom with him when he resurrected. We see in the scriptures where the saints of old, some of the old patriarchs, was seen walking in the streets of Jerusalem. It's the only time that I can truly say that, you know, possibly a ghost, but with physical form, they recognized these people. They hadn't seen them for a thousand years, but they recognized them. I believe a man walked out and he went, Hey, Moses, how's it going? What you doing back? Thought you died about a thousand years ago. I'm going to go get my wife now. I can envision that, that that conversation may have happened. They actually saw the patriarchs of old and they recognized them. He brought captivity captive. He did not just free them, and they're not just freely roaming on the earth, but he took them to heaven with him. Why do we call it Abraham's bosom? Luke 16, verses 22 through 26. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of the, his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The message from hell is don't come. Because we see later on in those same scriptures, he said, well, send Lazarus to my family. I've got brothers, and I don't want them here. Send Lazarus. If they'll believe Lazarus, Abraham said, ah, no, no, they won't. And he said, I can't send Abraham, I can't send Lazarus to you because there's a great gulf between the two of us. You can't come here and we can't come there. But when he took Abraham and when he went into the lower, or he descended that same far above all of the heavens, he first went into the lower parts of the earth. We call that upper Sheol. He went in, he talked to Abraham, he talked to all of those that had died before, and he rose. And hell enlarged itself, and now it's covering all of it. So yes, I truly believe that hell is a physical location. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thou good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. There's this great huge gulf. We can look across it, but we can't cross it. I can see you. I can holler at you, but we can't be friends. Now that gulf, I don't think that gulf exists anymore because I believe when Lazarus and all of the rest of them rose, hell enlarged itself and covered the gulf. Verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Christ is telling John, write it down. Put it in a book. John the Revelator was instructed to write the things he had seen. 
the things which was happening in his present time, and the things which would be taking place in the future. He was to write it all down, but one thing. He was instructed not to write something down, and he didn't write it down. And the whole world has wondered what was not written down. It's clearly, in, in the way I study it, we would be able to identify the Antichrist. We would know when Christ was coming back, without a question. Why is it written so that we don't know for a fact? We can't determine. We can't mathematically calculate it. We cannot put an algorithm in a computer and it spit out a date. It's not meant for us to know the exact date. It's meant for us to know the signs. If you knew that on March the 12th, 2023, Christ was coming back. I'm not saying that's when he's coming back. But if you knew that, March the 12th, March the 11th, you would have lived like a snake all those days before. March the 12th, you get it right with the Lord. You'd make it, no questions asked. But what if the Lord doesn't come back on March the 13th for all of his children? What if you go on March the 12th to meet him? There's a lot of people that have went by the way of the grave. See, you never, you never know when you're going to pass away. You never know when you're going to die. See, you have got to be ready at any given moment. That's why it's written so that we don't know the exact date. One, it would scare us. Two, we would try to manipulate the data. We would try to change the facts. Let's say the Antichrist's name is Sam. No one would name their children Sam. You wouldn't want your child named Sam to be possibly Sam the Antichrist, so you wouldn't name your children Sam. We would try to manipulate it. We would try to work it out. How many people, and there's nothing wrong with exercise, but how many people go to the gym just so that they can live longer? They're trying to delay their death. They're trying to delay the inevitable. We're all going to die eventually. Yes, we should take care of this temple, and that's what we are as a temple. We cannot change that. We have an appointment. We can hasten that appointment quicker, but we have... It's, it's kind of like I was telling them at work the other day. I've got this magical number out there. I've got this number that's set out in the future. I will not work any time beyond that number. I will retire by that number. I may retire before I get to that number, but I am not going to go beyond that number. That's my appointment for retirement. I may die before I get there. I may do something else and retire. They, they may offer me a severance package and I may leave. So I'm not saying that's my drop dead date. I'm saying that I will not work any longer after that date. If I make it to that date, I'm not going to go beyond that date. Christ is trying to tell us the same thing. You've got an appointment 
You're not going to go beyond that appointment. You can go before that appointment, but you're not going to go beyond that appointment. Here's your signs. Follow them. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Revelation is a self-revealing prophetic book or a prophecy to a point. The gold candlesticks are the churches John writes letters to, and we'll get into the churches in the next chapter. Stars are the angels of those churches. Some of the prophecies of this book are to be revealed as they happen or right before they happen. Matthew 24, we started this Bible study off five weeks ago with Matthew 24. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars and earthquake in diverse places. Those are our signs that something is happening. Well, there's always been wars and there's always been earthquakes. So how do we know that this is the days of sorrow? Have you ever heard it being this bad before? Oh, we've been in a depression in the 20s. People went without food. People was hungry. People had no jobs. Okay. But on top of all of that, did they have Russia beating up on Ukraine? Did they have Iran trying to overthrow their regime? Did they have Israel being surrounded by her enemies? Did they have Turkey having problems? Did they have Greece about to go bankrupt? No. Earthquakes. We just had one just a few years ago in South Carolina and in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Shook Mount Holly, shook Denver, North Carolina. When was the last time that you'd known that we'd had an earthquake? We have them all the time, actually. We just don't feel them. That one woke my wife up. I was already up. There's an earthquake in South Carolina today. Today. Just today. So we're seeing this stuff coming faster and faster. We can look at the world history. 1776, we're about to celebrate July the 4th, 1776. We declared our independence from Great Britain. Wow. And we shouldn't have won that war, but we did. Thank you, Lord. We go from 1776, almost 100 years, 1865. Now, we had some little skirmishes between those, yes. But 1865, we had a massive battle called the Civil War. It wasn't civil. North against the South. The war of between the states. The separation. However you want to call it. 1865. Just a few short decades later, 1917, 1914, we have World War I. They didn't call it that then. You know, you didn't want to say, well, this is World War I. That kind of implies you're going to have a two and a three. This was the war to end all wars in 1914. How did that work out for us? Didn't. Because 1940, three decades later, we had World War II. They're getting closer. We get out of, of World War II five years, and we're in the 50s. Oh my gosh, we're in Korea. We was in Korea for all, quite a few years. We started putting people in Vietnam in the 60s. 
not even a decade later. We stayed in Vietnam until 1974. That's when we came home, supposedly. A lot of people are still there. 70, late 70s, we had the Iran hostage crisis. In the 80s, we had Beirut getting blown up. In the 90s, we had an invasion of Kuwait. In the 2000s, we invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan, or we're still in Iraq, excuse me. We now have the war between Russia and Ukraine, which is sucking in other people. Do you see what's happening in the world? It's getting closer and closer and closer and closer and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Israel is Iran, let's put it this way. Iran is accusing Israel of killing all of their top generals in the IRCG, the Iraqi Revolutionary Guard. They're accusing Israel of going in and killing them. I wouldn't put it past Israel, to be honest with you. But Israel has already promised Iran will never be a nuclear world power. They'll take them out. Germany has said Iran is just a few weeks away from having the nuclear bomb. Germany is arming itself with Israeli weapons. The world has went crazy. We're living in some exciting times. But we should be looking into the scriptures and figuring out where we're at. I believe we're in the days of sorrow. I believe that this study of Revelation is very important for us to understand. We're not going to fully grasp it. We're not going to fully answer it. We're not going to be able to say this and this and this and this is going to happen next. We won't know that. But once we see it happening, we're going to go, Oh, man, that bald, fat old guy was talking about that just on a Thursday night. We're going to see it. Not because the old, fat, bald man was talking about it, but because it's written down in God's Word. And he's trying to give us that lamp to light our path. And this is the light so that we don't be deceived. He said even the elect will be deceived. He's trying to keep us from being deceived. That's why you need to study the book of Revelation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll end there because uh, we'll start in verse, or we'll start in chapter two next week. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us again to come into your house to study your word together, God. We ask, Lord, that you'll, Lord, that you'll enlighten our eyes of understanding so that we can see those signs of the times, Lord, and Lord, that we can point them out to others so that they will not be deceived, God. We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen.